Heavenly Father, thank you again for this morning and blessing us and being so good to us and pouring your spirit of love and grace in this room, Lord. Lord, we want to continue to worship you with all our heart as we get into your word, as we get into your study, Lord. Show us who you are and what you desire for us, Lord. Show us how loving and merciful and, and grace, full of grace you are, Lord. We are your children, and we will forever be your children. So now, speak to us, minister to us, Lord, as, as a father. Fill this room, Lord, and use me to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute against one another, how dare you, how dare you take it to court before, unri before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such, if you have such matters, do you, let me read that again. So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. How can it be there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this first section of chapter 6, Paul deals with another problem within the Corinthian church that was damaging their testimony among non-believers. Believers within the church were taking their legal disputes into pagan courts. So here he addresses why it's a problem and how it ought to be resolved. Paul begins by expressing his indignation towards those who are taking their legal complaints before unbelieving Roman judges, rather than taking them to competent believers in the church. He reminds them that, that they will help Jesus exercise judgment. Therefore, if this is the case, since this is the case, they should, they should be competent enough to handle these trivial disputes amongst themselves. And he also reminds them that they will also be judging angels. Now here he isn't speaking of those faithful angels that are ministering to the Lord, that are here to serve, that are serving us, but rather evil ones that have been corrupted, that have corrupted this world. 
Therefore, being qualified to judge angels at the end of the age ought to qualify these Christians to judge matters in this life. So if Christians are being prepared right now for such a glorious destiny, why would they then allow those secular judges to decide disputes, these trivial small disputes among Christians? So the fact that the, the, so the fact that there wasn't anyone wise enough who could settle these disputes was proof that they did not have as much wisdom as they thought. Now, by his own actions, Paul showed that he was not against legal action. In Acts 22 and in Acts 25, he appeared to Roman courts for his rights. However, Paul knew it was wrong when brother goes against brother um, or brother goes to law against brother. It's important to keep in mind that Paul never said, nor does the Bible ever say, Christians should have their own court systems to handle criminal cases. In fact, he says in Romans 13, 3 and 4, that it's actually appropriate for the state to handle them. And we're here we're talking about serious criminal cases. When I say trivial cases, I mean small little disputes such as um, uh, an unpaid debt or maybe someone accidentally spilled coffee on you. But uh, what he's saying is that Christians should be able to handle civil cases amongst themselves. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul writes that those Christians at Corinth suing one another should have been willing to be wronged and defrauded. You see, t attacking a fellow believer in secular courts only puts a stain on the name of Christ and the higher good of his kingdom. A person who is wrong shouldn't think that Paul is asking them to take a loss. Because the reality is, no one who accepts wrong for the sake of God's glory will ever, ever be a loser. Now, ideally, the church should have settled, should have settled this dispute. But if the church failed to do so, Paul, is, is, Paul asks that those being wronged should trust God not in secular judges and lawsuits and courts. In verses 9 and 10, he speaks strongly against the brother who did the wrong. And essentially he says, don't you realize how serious your sin is? The only thing you may gain from cheating your brother is eternity with the unrighteous. Now Paul wasn't categorically, categorically denying this individual's salvation. Paul actually says that he's among the brethren. What he's doing is he's rejecting a person's religious faith that is separate from their actions. If a Christian can cheat and defraud his brothers without, without, a, without conscience, it may be fairly asked, is he, a, he or she a Christian at all? Paul is implying in verses 9 and 10 that a person who wrongs, cheats, and defrauds another brother or sister in Christ is essentially in the same boat as uh, sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally, the verbally abusive, and the swindlers. He reminds them that those who live their lives characterized by these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't talking about 
isolated acts of unrighteousness, isolated acts of sin, but about the whole way of life pursued persistently by those, by those who thus indicate that they would be aliens in the kingdom of truth and light. So what Paul wants to convey here is that those who cheat other believers must examine themselves to see if their life is dominated and characterized by this sin just as much as any other people that Paul had just described. If so, they should be just as concerned about their salvation as any other people. Paul ends this section in a more hopeful note by letting them know in verse 11 that such behavior characterized their pre the pre-Christian lives of many of these Corinthians. Therefore, since they are no longer in the same category as the unrighteous, they're better suited to settle disputes amongst themselves than the pagan courts could ever be. To stress the new holiness of character God has given them and in which they are growing, Paul ends this section with another reminder. He tells them, you were washed. And what he means by that is they were washed clean from sin by the mercy of God. He tells them they were sanctified. You were sanctified. Meaning they were set apart to God by the work of Jesus on the cross, by God's word, by faith in Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit. He also tells them you were justified. And what he means is you, you were declared just before the court of God, not merely not guilty, but declared innocent, righteous, and holy before him. They have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the Lord. Now here this is interesting because without even trying to present the doctrine of the Trinity, Paul naturally lists the three persons of the Godhead in connection with the work of God, the, of the work of God, that God does in a believer. Now we as Americans here live in a culture where a person can pretty much sue anyone for pretty much anything. According to the National Center of State Courts, in 2017 there were over 15 million civil cases filed in the United States. And as I looked at those numbers, I wondered how many of them involved a Christian suing another Christian for something as simple of, as an unpaid debt. As Christians, it's important that we be mindful before suing another Christian for trivial matters. Before Christians decide to jump into the mud hole of legal litigation, believers ought to really consider the purpose intent and the consequences for taking another brother or sister to court. Paul here in these first 11 verses clearly lays out how we ought to settle trivial disputes among one another. First, we must understand who we are, what we've become, and who we will be. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17 tells us who we are. There it says, 
The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, you are a child of God. And so is the person sitting next to you. And we're all part of a glorious family belonging to a loving Father and united by His Spirit. Therefore, we ought to see and treat each other in the same way He sees and treats us, with love, with mercy, with patience, and with compassion. We're not only God's children and co-heirs with Christ, but according to 1 Peter 2.9, you become a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And as such, we have a kingdom that awaits us that will never end and will never fail and will never fall. A kingdom made by the holy hands of the living God and ruled by his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. In verses 2 and 3 of our passage, it clearly tells us that we will be what we will be as children and co-heirs with Christ. As redeemed men and women, we're destined not only to judge the world, but also be higher than the angels and to even sit in judgment of them. This was man's original purpose, laid out plainly in the Bible's opening chapter to have dominion over creation. When we come to the very last chapter of the Bible, this is the vocation that is finally being fulfilled. The saints reigning with Christ. Now, secondly, competent leaders ought to be sought in the church to arbitrate disputes. Our passage is pretty clear that believers should not be suing one another. There are better ways to handle disputes among believers. Mediation or arbitration through the church or, or, or a professional arbiter offer pathways to reconciliation that seem far more compatible with the principles of, that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, uh, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and 20. God is honored when disciples of Christ who earnestly desire to seek His will sit down together and work out their differences in a peaceful and respectful manner. Thirdly, it's better for Christians to be wronged than to do wrong and cheat others. You see, it's, it's better to lose money, it's better to lose possessions and to lose a brother or sister and lose your testimony as well. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if, anyone's if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive others. 
So you also uh, are to also forgive. First Peter 3, 8 and 9 also says, All of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Well, verses 9-11 and verses 9-11 provide a natural transition back into the broad area of sexual ethics. In this last section, in this last section we'll look at, Paul will address some of the questions and problems the Corinthian Christians wanted them to do in regard to sex. So let's pick up in verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined with a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral, who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. After the problems of the incestuous man, in chapter 5 and the lawsuits against believers in the beginning of this chapter Paul now turns to treat sexual immorality in in general but particularly manifested in prostitution for which the Corinthians or Corinth was infamous in verses 12 and 13 Paul quotes three slogans or phrases that the Corinthians were probably either familiar with or Paul had used in teaching about Christian liberty. Verse 12 quotes the, fir the first slogan twice, everything is permissible for me. This popular phrase is based on the false view of Christian freedom. Paul's point is that a believer's freedom is to be limited to that which is profitable to the Lord. In the context in which Paul is using it here, he's probably refer referring to a false belief some of them had, that they had the liberty to use the services of a prostitute. You see, at that time, in that community, it was culturally acceptable within the religious pagan community. They saw nothing wrong with the religious person going to prostitutes. That's what they did in their temple. They would go and just, it's just part of, it's just like taking communion or just part of, 
um, the service, going to prostitutes. And so for them, it was a natural thing. The slogan, now I'll move on before I get more into details about that. Um, the slogan in verse 13, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, could reflect his more specific reference to freedom from Jewish dietary laws. However, some of the Christians at Corinth were using this model to justify giving their bodies whatever they wanted. My body wants food, so I eat. My body wants sex, so I hire a prostitute. What's the problem? Apart from these contexts, these slogans virtually invite people to sin. Paul's reply to these slogans is that the Corinthian Christians are not their own. They are bodies belonging to the Lord. Paul said that a person's body is not for sexual immorality. It's actually for the Lord. Hence, Paul explains that Christians still must submit to, a, to moral authority or moral principles. Not because all 613 commandments of the Mosaic law tell them to, but because many things simply are not beneficial and truly not liberating. As followers, as followers of Christ, we should never justify behavior because of our Christian liberty. Just because we've been freed from the law doesn't mean that we ought to completely disregard it. Just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's beneficial. And I want to point out a couple of examples. Now, some people would say that we have, some Christians have the freedom to drink. I know Baptists, you know, they, they're totally against it, you, you know, and you find some churches that are okay with it. But I've seen so many cases of people being in bondage. They, have, they, they start with this freedom, like thinking, oh yeah, I have the freedom to do this, and next thing you know, they come un un under bondage of alcoholism, of that sin. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean that it's beneficial. I know that for myself, it's, it can be very easy to fall into that sin again. I know what I'm capable of as a former uh, alcoholic. I know that it can snatch me up quickly without me even knowing. It, it, that's how you know, quickly it, 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 it's, it will shackle me up. And that's the last thing I want. You know, I've been given this freedom. I've been set free by the blood of Jesus. And why would I want to be shackled? Why would I want to be imprisoned again by something else? And another example, and this is a fairly kind of new one that people often say, hey, you know what? It's okay, we can smoke some dope, smoke some pot, you know, again. Is it beneficial for you? Yes, you may have the liberty to do these things. And, and well, actually, depends on what state you're in. Texas is still illegal. And nationally, too, it's still illegal. But whether you're in Colorado, California, one of these other states, you know, where it is legal, again, is it 
is it really benefits you. You are free in Christ, but don't use that freedom to bring yourself or others into a new kind of bondage. The Bible says in Galatians 5.13, you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Before you start moving into that gray territory, ask yourself, will this enslave me? Is this actually profitable for my spiritual life? Now, when it comes to our sexual desires, we mustn't treat it as an appetite to be satisfied, but instead see it as a gift to be cherished and used carefully. Just because we have certain normal desires given by God at creation does not mean that we must give in to them and always satisfy them. Sex outside of marriage is destructive, while sex in marriage can be creative and beautiful. Warren Risby put it like this, there may be excitement and enjoyment in sexual experience outside of marriage, but there is not enrichment. Sex outside of marriage is like a man robbing a bank. He gets something, but it's not his, and one, and one day, and will one day pay for it. Sex within marriage can be like a person putting money into a bank. There is safety, security, and he will collect dividends. To further his point, in verses 15 and 17, Paul forms a syllogism. You guys ever heard of a syllogism? Here, I'll explain it right now. A syllogism is a kind of logical argument that applies to deductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion based on two or more statements that are asserted or assumed to be true. Now, even if that doesn't make sense, I'll break it down even more. Here's an example of a syllogism. All men are mortal. Isaac is a man. Therefore, Isaac is mortal. You get it? That's, that's a syllogism. So this is the syllogism, syllogism that Paul forms. The bodies of Christians are members of Christ himself. Sexual intercourse unites two human beings, as taught in Genesis 2.24. And thirdly, sexual intercourse with a prostitute, therefore, unites members of Christ with that prostitute. Paul's point is that, sexual, is that the sexual relationship in marriage is a physical manifestation of sharing a common life, having relationships with a prostitute, not just, and I want to say not just a prostitute, but just anyone in general, just going out there and living a promiscuous lifestyle. But having relations with all kinds of people, shares, you, basically you're sharing a life with that person rather than with the Lord, with whom one shares a spiritual bond. The believer, therefore, must flee. And this word flee is the Greek word, it's the Greek word uh, like a fugitive. Flee like a fugitive, run away as fast as you can, just like um, Joseph did at Potiphar's house. Run away, flee in the face of immorality. 
Paul's statement, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body, should be understood in the context of what he said in verses of what he just said in verses 13 and 15. A believer's body is for the Lord. That he is one of the members of Christ. And that he should not take away the members of Christ and give it to a prostitute. You see the sin, you see the sin against a believer's own body is keeping it from being available to Jesus for serving and glorifying him and giving it to a prostitute instead. Now Paul isn't saying that Christians should flee sex, only sexual immorality. God gave sex as a precious gift to mankind and uses it powerfully to bond husband and wife together in one true flesh, in one flesh relationship. Just as the Roman or the Greco-Roman gods owned and resided in their own temples, Paul then says in verse 19 that believers belong to God who indwells them with the Holy Spirit. The point he's making here is that God owns believers and therefore their bodies are a sacred vessel bought by a price by the Son of God. And because of this, believers have no business doing anything with the Lord's body that does not glorify Him. Now I want to take a moment to show you more clearly three more reasons why sexual promiscuity is wrong. Firstly, when a man and woman and a woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. There is a much deeper experience, a oneness that brings with it deep and lasting consequences. Paul warned that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against his body, for it involves the whole person, not just part of the person, but the whole entire person. Sex is just not part of the body. Being male and female involves the total person. Therefore, sexual experience affects the total personality. Secondly, sexual promiscuity promises, compromises one's very being. And, it's similar, and this is similar to the first one, but um, although the repercussions of every sin is serious, sexual sin is unique in that it's the only sin against oneself. Solomon shed further light on this when he said in Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. See, because we're made in the image of a triune God, we are, we are comp I'm sorry, comprised of three parts as well, a body, a soul and a spirit. The body relates to the physical world. The soul is one's essence, one's personality, and relates to people. The spirit relates to God and will live eternally. 
Thus, each time one engages in immoral activity, a part of his soul is permanently and irreplaceably forfeited. The tragedy then is the one who continues to live in promiscuity becomes less and less a person, less and less a person and more of, um, as a piece of his soul is stripped away with each encounter. And thirdly, sexual promiscuity defiles the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit lives within you. And therefore God considers your body a temple of the Holy Spirit. Any honest person will take care of something that doesn't belong to them. Your bodies belong to God because He bought them. We don't have the right to pollute and abuse God's property. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, God Himself lives within you, lives within us. This means we have the strength and power to over the sins of the flesh living within us. We have the power to say, no, that is sinful. I don't want to be part of that because we know that it grieves God. That's not what God wants for us. We should expect sexual purity from Christians more from those who are not because they do not have God living within them as we do. This chapter showed us two serious issues occurring within the Corinthian church. Lawsuits among believers and their false notion that they had a freedom to be sexual promiscuous. And we saw that Paul deals with these two issues directly and candidly. These issues not only affected the church in Corinth, but also affect the church today. Therefore, it's important that we heed Paul's advice on how to deal with disputes among believers and not use our freedoms in Christ, our freedom in Christ, as an excuse to fulfill the desires of our flesh. We must remember that the grace of God can change a sinner's life. He says in verse 11, and some of you used to be like this. Isn't it wonderful how faith in Christ can make a sinner into a new creation? So it's important that we live like those who are part of God's new creation. Remember, we are not our own. We belong to the Father who made us, the Son who redeemed us, and the Spirit who indwells us. And not only that, but we belong to the people of God, the church, and our sins can weaken the testimony and infect the fellowship. I want to give anyone watching or listening an opportunity to have their sins washed away. Maybe some of you have lived a promiscuous lifestyle. 
Maybe some of you have done things that you wouldn't even tell your neighbor or your best friend about. Whatever you've done in the past, whatever has happened, God will forgive you. God will make you into a new creation. He will wash away your sins and make you completely clean and give you a new lease in life. All you have to do is open your heart and allow Jesus to come in and make his home in you. And once he does, he's going to start cleaning out all the junk, start showing you things that you've never seen before. You'll have a fresh new vision in life, of life, of him. Man, he wants to completely transform your life if you just allow him. So if you've never done that, again, if, if this is, you've heard these words and, and you want to be forgiven for all those past indiscretions, all those past sins, all those things that you think about, and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I, man, I feel like it's just, it's, it, was, it was horrible, it was bad, and I don't know if God will ever forgive, forgive me. He will. Believe me, I've done some, I think all of us can think of some pretty awful things that we've done in our lives. And it's freeing to know that he's taken it and washed it away and has made us clean or forgiven. So if you've not, never done that and you want to do that, you want to accept Lord as, uh, Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Wherever you're at, just close your eyes and bow your head and pray this. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. I know that I've fallen short. And that I've completely blown it, Lord. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe He is Lord. So I now lay all my sins upon Him. I accept your forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit so that I may learn from you, so that I may be filled with your love, so that I may grow into the image of Christ. Thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you pray that, let me just tell you this, you've become a born-again believer. And now the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. So I encourage you to fan that flame by getting into God's Word. Surround yourself with other believers and pray. Pray continuously for guidance and growth. You are His child now. And he will, 
hear you and answer you according to his will. Again, as, as a church, let me encourage you again. There's a problem, there's an issue amongst us. Let's try to settle it amongst ourselves. If, again, does, the whole church doesn't need to know, but you know, if it's something that we can't handle, I know other churches, other pastors that definitely can, that have, have had the experience. If it's an issue, a uh, female issue, you know, um, that don't, again, Robin may be able to help or she may find, she may know people that may be able to, to assist. But again, let's, let's, again, we want to be united as a church. It's a problem, let's, let's talk about it. And once again, let's flee sexual immorality. Let's be united and be one with Christ and dedicate our bodies to Him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. The word you've given us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some of these words may be hard. Some of these words may be difficult. But you have a reason for giving them. You have a reason. There is a reason why Paul, you led Paul to write these words. And it wasn't just for the Corinthians church, but it's for all of us here in the 21st century church as well. Lord, help us to see where we've fallen short and where we have. Forgive us. Lord, if we have abuse these bodies in any kind of way, Lord, we turn back and just dedicate them to you. Lord, you're so good, so wonderful. We dedicate this next time to you, Lord, this time of fellowship. Keep us all safe this week. Keep every mother here blessed. May they be blessed and may they be just have a great time today in this special day for them. Lord, we love you and praise you and honor you with all our hearts, all our minds, and all our souls. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.